James chapter number 2 this evening, and we finished up James chapter number 1 two weeks ago, talking about pure religion and undefiled. And as we begin chapter number 2, of course, the chapter divisions in the Bible are not inspired. They're not there in the original text. They're put there for our convenience. And many times the chapter division, though it's in a logical place, really does divide between thoughts and kind of in the middle of the flow. And really, James chapter number 2 and verse number 1, James is continuing on in the same vein that he has just started in, talking about love. And this evening we really want to talk about the fact that a heart that loves God loves others. If I have a heart that loves God as it should, by nature of that fact, I will love other people. And we'll, we'll talk about that this evening and bear that fact out. You know, James is a book, we've talked about this before, that deals with practical Christianity. And in chapter 1 there, James has just finished talking about how we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. How that bridling one's tongue is a sign of a heart that is under control. And that pure religion and undefiled before God is visiting the fatherless and widow in their affliction. And so we'll continue on in that same thread. James chapter number 2 and verse number 1 says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring, in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. So a heart that loves God loves others. The first thing that we'll notice this evening is that James gives to us an admonition. An admonition. He starts there in verse number 1, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. So James kind of sums it up in verse number 1 here of chapter 2 by saying that we're not to have faith in God and have the respect of persons. We are to abolish having the respect of persons. The respect of persons is deeming one person as being more worthy of being treated with love and respect than another because of their appearance or station. And it's easy to do as human beings. We can begin to treat other people with respect. 
you kind of make judgment calls about people based on their outward appearance. If you're walking down the street in the dark of night, and it's kind of a rougher neighborhood, and it's dim, it's dark, and you see someone come out from the shadows, and they are wearing raggedy clothing. They're dressed in a manner, and maybe they're kind of stumbling a little bit. You're probably going to be concerned about that individual. Whereas if you see someone step out, and they're walking in a normal manner, and they're dressed in a clean uh, clean clothing, and they're carrying themselves normally, you'll probably be somewhat alarmed, but a little more relaxed than you would be otherwise, right? We're used to making judgment calls based on a person's appearance. But the problem, James says, that comes is when we begin to treat people with disrespect because of how they appear, because of their station, when we have the respect of persons. Deeming one person as being worthy of love and respect while we deem someone else unworthy. If we stop and really think about it, having the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ should inform us that we should not be respecters of persons. James says here that we are not to have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect of persons. The very fact that any of us can even have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ is due to the fact that God is no respecter of persons. So James here, he's not saying that we should not have the faith in Jesus Christ and have the respect of persons. Like, oh, you find yourself this evening having the respect of persons, you should just, okay, well, I'll throw my faith away. That's not what he's saying. He says, have not. But the thing that we're to throw away is the respect of persons not our faith in Jesus. Romans, if you turn over to the book of Romans, chapter number 2. Romans 2 and verse number 11 He says, for there is no respect of persons with God. Now we're jumping right into the middle of a a whole line of thought that the Apostle Paul is going through here. But the fact of the matter is, the verse is very clear on its own. God has no respect of persons. God doesn't look at you and I because we are Gentiles and say, oh, They're unworthy of the grace of God. They're unworthy of salvation because they're Gentiles. Let me exclude them and only go with salvation to the Jewish people. And that that should be something that you and I are thankful for, that we praise God for. Because as far as I know, none of us have a Jewish heritage here this evening. I'm pretty sure most of us fall rather squarely in the Gentile category. I know that I myself do. I'm a pasty white Gentile. I am not of any Jewish heritage. So under, you know, if we go by God having respect of persons and he only loves the Israelite people, well, then I'm out. I have no ability to come to God. But God is no respecter of persons, and therefore God offers, even to people like me, salvation. And that is something that I am thankful of 
thankful for. And so the very fact that God is not a respecter of persons, if I am to be like him, if I am to have the love of God, then I, myself, should not be a respecter of persons. You know, Jesus is a very good example to us of someone who is not a respecter of persons. If you think back to the Gospels, what was one of the main things, one of the main problems that the Pharisees had with Jesus Christ? It was the fact that he would sit down with publicans and sinners. He would sit down and he would have meals and he would talk about the things of God with those that to the Pharisees were the untouchables. They were the people that you did not associate with. A Pharisee would not do anything to even lift a finger to help someone like that. Jesus even told a parable to that end when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he described there a Pharisee and a scribe walking by, not even lifting a finger to help the man who was of their own country, who was laying there bleeding and dying. They wouldn't do it because they were too good. And in that story, you'll remember, it was a Samaritan. It was one of the outcasts, one of the ones that the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with, who was the one who went and helped that man. But you think of some of the other people that Jesus associated himself with. Jesus associated with Judas. And you'll remember that after Judas betrayed him, Jesus called him friend. Jesus appealed to Judas to come back to him. Judas would have nothing of it. But you think about that. Jesus was not a respecter of persons. If anyone deserved to be cut off, done, it was Judas. One who had walked with Jesus and spit in his face. One who betrayed him with a kiss. But yet, Jesus had time for Judas. You think about Jesus as he stopped there in Sychar. He stopped at the well. And he waited there for a woman, a Samaritan woman, one that any self-respecting Jewish man would have absolutely nothing to do with because she was a Samaritan. Not only that was she a Samaritan, but she was a woman of ill repute. She was someone that no Pharisee would ever be caught dead spending time with. But yet Jesus stopped and he sat on a well and he spoke to her of her great need and how she could quench her thirst with water so that she would never thirst again. You think about Zacchaeus. As Jesus stopped and spent time with Zacchaeus and with men like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a rich man. He was a rich tax collector. And I don't like paying taxes. I don't like the IRS. But if you think about the IRS in their day, Zacchaeus, not only is he the embodiment of the IRS, the tax man, he was one who would come and he would literally extort you to line his own pockets. Most of the employees of the IRS don't have that ability, right? They just go by the tax code. They do their job according to how they're told to do their job. They don't have any ability to really come in and grab your tax dollars and buy a yacht with it or something, right? They're just doing their job. But in Jesus' day, that's literally what the tax collectors would do. 
they would say, oh, well, the Roman tax is maybe 20%, but the tax rate today is 45%. And that other 25% was going straight into their pocket. They were lining their own pocketbooks. And so Zacchaeus was one of these kind of individuals who literally stole from his countrymen and lined his own pockets. But yet Jesus had time for one like him. Jesus was not a respecter of persons. But you'll notice there in verse number 1, he says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Now it's interesting that he refers to him here as the Lord of glory. Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We should stop and consider the awesome glory of Jesus Christ. You think about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is the Lord of glory. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. He is the one who reigns supreme over heaven. He is the only one who has real glory. Glory that you and I cannot even comprehend. Glory that you and I cannot approach unto. Glory that in the Old Testament, right, Moses got to see a portion. He got to see like the tail of God's glory. And it so affected him that his face literally shone. I don't think we really understand the glory of God. In the book of Isaiah, it's, the scene is painted of the throne room in heaven, and the seraphim flying about, crying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And the, the passage there talks about the fact that the posts of the door, so if you can think about the size of the door and the size of the posts of the door in the throne room of heaven, it's got to be big. We're not given any measurements or dimensions, Brother Scotty. You work at Home Depot, right? It's got to be a door that Home Depot doesn't carry. I would imagine. It's the throne room of heaven. It's got to be big, right? But, I mean, you think about the biggest, most beefy, solid door that man can make, and it probably is greater than that. But you think about a really heavy-duty steel door that's really set into concrete, and you think about a voice that can cry, holy, holy, holy. And the posts of the door literally move at that voice. That's a powerful voice. But that voice is not the voice of God. That voice is the voice of the angel proclaiming the glory of God. So if that's just the voice of the angel, that kind of, you know, we're stair-stepping it up to get to a picture of the glory of God. I, it blows my mind. It's one of those things that if you stop and you really begin to ponder and meditate on and think about, your mind will just kind of shut down. It'll just kind of melt. It's like when you sit there and you try to think about eternity. And you think about, hey, how long is eternity? And you reach a point where your mind just like, poop. It can't go no further. It does not compute. So James here, he says that we are not to have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
And you think about the kind of glory, the grandeur, the majesty of Jesus Christ. And yet he is one who does not have respect of persons. There is and has never been, nor will there ever be, anyone who can approach to the glory of God. Nothing like it. But yet, he does not have the respect of persons. So who are we? As puny, insignificant creatures in comparison to God, who are we to look at our fellow brethren and have respect of persons? That's what James is saying. He's saying, guys, when you think about who God is, we're nothing. We don't approach anywhere unto him. Don't have faith in him and respect of persons. So there's an admonition from James. Second of all, there's an illustration that he gives us. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place. Or say to the poor, Stand thou here, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? So James gives us an illustration here. It's an illustration that we can all understand. It's pretty clear. Two different men enter into a church service. One of the men is wearing a gold ring and good apparel. He's obviously a man who has some wealth. He comes in, and right on his tail comes a man who is obviously poor. He's wearing vile raiment. His clothing has holes in it. It's smeared with dirt and grease. He smells kind of bad. The first man is welcomed with respect. Hey, welcome. We're glad to have you. He's given a good seat. His clothing is gay. We're brightly colored. You know, in our day, that doesn't really mean much. But in Bible days, that would have meant a lot. The dye for clothing was very expensive. Not only that, clothing itself was very expensive. You and I live in a day and age where clothing is not really that expensive. We can go down to Walmart or Dollar Tree or something like that and pick up clothing, which may not be all that nice in the long run, but it gets the job done. And it's not really that bad. But in Bible days, most people, they just had one outfit. That was all that they could afford. And if they had an outfit that was brightly colored, you'll remember in the Old Testament, Joseph had a coat of many colors. And it was a sign of respect. It was a sign of someone who was important, someone who had means and money. So this man comes in, and his clothing is brightly colored. And he is given a seat of significance. He is told to sit in a good place while the other man is told to stand off to the side or to sit under the, the footstool. You think about that, even the usher's feet. The usher who welcomed this man into the... Well, not really welcome, that's the wrong word. The usher who brought this man in to the service, he had a footstool. And even the footstool had a better view than this guy. He said, yeah, just, just sit here under the footstool. Get out of the way, out of sight, out of mind. 
we'll, we'll allow you to be here, but we don't really want you here. You see, the problem with the illustration that James gives here is not the fact that they showed respect to the first man. That's not wrong. If a, if a rich man comes in and you give him a good seed and a good welcome, there's nothing wrong with that. James isn't saying that we shouldn't welcome people who are rich, that we should not show them respect. The problem is that they did that and they did not show respect to the poor man. They had judged him to be worthless and insignificant. So then we see this evening an an explanation. Why is James telling us all of this? In verse number 4, he says, Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? James tells us that this illustration that he has given, the reason why he's given it is to point out that they are being partial, and they are becoming, they have become judges of evil thoughts. That word partial, we understand, it means to be loving of some, loving to some, while we exclude others. To treat one group or some people nice and other people not. To be partial. But then he says that they are judges of evil thoughts. He's not saying that being partial makes us a judge that decides what thoughts are evil and what thoughts are not evil. But rather, what he is saying here is that we are partial. We're having evil thoughts about the poor man. We're judging them to be not worth much of anything. When we think about a judge, someone who sits as a judge, you know, partiality is a terrible thing in a judge. In our system, our the way that our law is laid out, judges are to be impartial. The law is to be blind. You are to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. This is the way that the legal system in America is structured. And a judge that sits on the bench and is partial would be a terrible thing. You don't want someone who is partial to be your judge. Because you don't want to sit before him and find that he is partial against you. And that he judges you based on things that have nothing to do with the case. He looks at you and he sees that you have brown hair. And he doesn't like people who have brown hair. And so he judges a wrong judgment against you. Or he sees that you have no hair. And he does not like people who have no hair. And so he judges a poor judgment against you based on that fact. And, of course, silly example, right? But we understand what it means to be partial. To have a judge who's tainted against a political view. And sadly, in our day, it seems that this is more and more common, that there are, there is partiality in judgments. So that would be a bad thing. But you know what is far worse than that? Partiality in how we treat others in regard to the gospel. That's far worse than any legal partiality that could take place in this country. To look at someone and to say, well, they're not worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ for some whatever reason, fill in the blank. 
but to treat someone else as worthy. That would be terrible. And that is what James, that is the purpose here. That is what James is saying. That is why James is talking about this. But we see then that James draws a contrast between the rich and the poor in his day. There in verse number 5, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? So James draws a contrast between the rich and the poor in his day. He points out that God has chosen the poor of this world that are rich in faith. You know, certainly in the Bible there are examples of how God has chosen the poor, the weak, the despised people of this world. Jesus himself spoke of being poor in spirit and how that kind of person would be one who inherited the kingdom of God. You know, being physically poor is not a guarantee, though, that someone will be rich in faith. James here is not elevating being poor. He's not saying that you and I need to go out and give away all of our money and everything that we have and just be poor people so that we can be rich in faith. That's not what James is saying. Someone can have physical means but still be poor in spirit. But so often... So often what happens when someone has physical means is that they are proud. They are without need of God in their minds. They have everything that they need in this life, everything that they could want in this world, and so they don't really need to depend upon God. But there is a truth that when you and I have to depend upon God for our daily bread, that it changes the way that we relate with Him. Being physically poor can sometimes help people be rich in faith. You know, Jesus himself spoke of how hard it is for someone who is rich to humble themselves before God. He told the disciples that it, would, that it was impossible, really. He said it'd be easier for someone, for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to be saved. Now, a lot of commentators have talked about, well, there used to be this gate that was called the eye of the needle. Now, Jesus is, I think he's being literal there. That it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. Or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. I'll get that right. Jesus is saying that it's impossible. And if you go to that passage and you, you examine that, we won't tonight for time. But the, the disciples' reaction bears that out. Because they, they say to Jesus, well, Jesus, who, who then can be saved? They're amazed at what Jesus has to say. Jesus, that's impossible. But James here says that the reader, who he's writing to, those that this letter is originally penned to, they have despised the poor. The illustration that James had gave, given earlier was more than just a simple illustration. Verse number 6, he says, But ye have despised 
the poor. The ones that James was originally writing to apparently had a problem. They had literally done what James had talked about. Men had come in, one in goodly apparel and one in vile raiment. And they had honored the one and they had put the other one down. They'd put him under the footstool. They'd had him hide. They'd despised the poor. But he says that in verse number six, and he asks this question. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? He points out that rich people that were being exalted, the ones that were coming in and being exalted, they were the very ones that were dragging them before the judgment seat and blaspheming the name of God. So it's like someone came in to church who was rich, and they said, oh, great. If this guy joins the church, I mean, just imagine the tithes that he'll bring. We won't ever have to worry about money ever again. And then someone else comes in looking poor. Oh, get out of here. We don't want you. They'd gotten their eyes, they'd gotten their focus off of their purpose. What was their purpose? Their purpose is to share the gospel. Their purpose is to sharpen one another. Their purpose is to honor and glorify God. But they had begun to have respect of persons. And James points out, you know, you guys, you're kind of shooting yourselves in the foot. These guys that are coming in, these rich men... They're the very ones that tomorrow they're going to be dragging you in front of the judgment seat to extort all the money that they can get out of you and blaspheming the name of God. It's kind of a goofy thing to do then. But James points out then, last of all there in verse number 8, he says, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. James points out that partiality is in direct opposition to loving your neighbor as yourself. See, if you honor some and you put others down, if you have respect of persons, you're convinced of the law as transgressors. So these that James was writing to, of course, they were of Jewish heritage, and they would have prided themselves on knowing the royal law. The royal law. That thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And James says, he says that's a good thing to do. And today, brethren, it is a good thing for you and I to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's a positive thing. That's a, a thing that Jesus repeats. But James points out that we can't say that we love our neighbor as ourself and have respect to persons. It is in direct opposition to one another. So then, last of all this evening, we'll look at an application. An application. You say, well, what about us? I don't think that we're necessarily guilty of what James is talking about here in this passage. This idea that a rich man has come in and we have honored him and a poor man has come in and we have despised him. We're, we're typically pretty happy when anyone comes in, right? But we still have to be careful. 
There are ways in which you and I today can be respecters of persons. You know, our economic situation is set up a little differently today than it was in James's day. In James's day, being rich usually was associated with power. Those that were rich were generally of the ruling class, and those that were poor were the majority. They were those that were oppressed, those that were looked down upon. In our country, we have it a little bit easier. You can be poor and be elevated into the ruling class, although it does seem that once you get into the ruling class, money starts to come in from all over the place. We won't go there tonight. But in general, in our country, we are fairly well off. Things are a lot more even than they may have been in James's day. But I want you to think about us and think about yourself. Are you tempted to act like the brethren that James is writing to? Now, maybe not in the same way, but I would imagine if you stop and you look deep enough in your heart that you'll find that the same root of sin, the same tendency to be respecter, a respecter of persons, is still there. Now, you may not honor someone who is rich in the same way that they did in James's day and despise someone who is poor in the same way, but you and I can very easily be guilty of being respecters of persons. Are you guilty of treating those that come into our assembly with varying levels of respect based on your judgment of them outwardly and the promise that they may or may not hold? We have to be careful with this. It, it's easy to have smoother, easier relationships with some people in the church and yet have other people that it's not as free-flowing. Other people that maybe you'd be tempted to look down upon. Someone who comes in and say, well, you know, I don't, I don't really like them as much as someone else in the church. Someone that you click with. Someone that friendship is easy. We have to be careful that we don't begin to become respecters of persons. We have to be careful that when someone comes in who's lost, a visitor who comes in, that we are not respecters of persons in the way that we greet them. If someone comes in and they're dressed in a poor manner, we should not shun them. We should not treat them any differently than we would someone who comes in carrying a Bible who looks like a promising convert or someone who we think would be a great addition to the church or anything like that. We ought to treat everyone who walks in that door with the same level of respect and honor showing to them the love of Christ. How about reaching out with the gospel? Are you guilty of withholding your witness from those that you deem unworthy or unreceptive of it? You know, that's a hard one if you really begin to think about it and apply it. In Jesus' day, the disciples, they would have been guilty of wanting to withhold their witness from Gentiles and Samaritans. And it took a long time. You can read through the New Testament and you can see kind of how they wrestled with that. It took them a while to get to 
the, the point where they were okay with the gospel going to the Gentiles, to wrap their mind around that. They got upset with Paul and with Peter. You remember when, when uh, Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and he witnesses to Cornelius, and Cornelius and several of the men there get saved, and then Peter, is, he's grilled by the other brethren. They're like, Peter, why did you go to the Gentiles? And he says, well, guys, this is what happened. You know, I was praying before mealtime, and God gave me this vision, and three times he told me not to call that, which is common, unclean. And then this guy showed up, and he tells the whole story, and it took a story like that for them to be like, oh, okay, I, I guess that was okay for you to go and share the gospel with the Gentiles. Now, you and I may not have that level of prejudice, but we can be guilty. We can be guilty of looking at someone and thinking, oh, well, they wouldn't be receptive of the gospel. They wouldn't be interested in me handing them a tract. They wouldn't be interested in talking with me about Jesus Christ. And you know, it's funny. Some of the times that that's gone on in my head, and I've overcome that, and I've gone, and I've offered that rough-looking biker dude with all the tattoos and the piercings who looks like he's ready to rip my head off. I've gone, and I've tried to talk to him about the gospel. And you'll find that oftentimes people like that, that to our outward eyes look like, ah, you'll find that, whoa, that was one of the best conversations I had today with that guy. That's kind of crazy. But you know how sad if you and I are guilty of withholding our witness from those that we deem unworthy or unreceptive. And then last of all this evening, within the assembly itself, among our church, brethren, are you guilty of acting in partiality towards others? Or are you loving your neighbor as yourself? This is where the rubber really begins to meet the road. How you and I treat one another, we ought to treat one another with love. We ought to love one another as we love ourselves. The way in which we interact with one another should be with respect, but not varying levels of respect. We shouldn't treat some brethren in the church as not worthy of our time, while we treat others as really worthy of our time. And that's something that you and I have to be careful of in our own hearts, that we have to mine out, that we have to ask God to root out and allow us to love one another as we ought to. It's a different passage this evening, but I'll remind you how we started the message. The overarching theme, the big idea in all of this is that a heart that loves God loves others. And it may look different in the illustration, it may look different in the application for you and I today. We may not treat people the same way that they did in James's day, but that same root of sin that springs up the respect of persons, oh, it's still there. It might carry itself out in different ways today, but you and I must be careful because if we proclaim ourselves to be lovers of God, a heart that loves God, loves others. So how is your heart this evening? Would you say, I love God? I want to follow Him. I, ha- I want to have a heart that loves God. Well, brethren, a practical way that we can test that. A practical way that you and I can look in because we know that our heart, my heart, is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it, the Bible says. 
Well, a good way to know it, a good way to see a little bit of what's inside of me is to examine myself and say, God, how do I love others? How do I treat others? Do I have the respect of persons within me? Do I love myself more than I love others? Let God begin to do a work in your heart tonight.